my wife, Laura, her older sister, Lisa, lives in Colorado, and we enjoy periodically, as we have the opportunity, uh, to go out there in the wintertime, uh, because usually we get a, a day or so to ski in the Colorado Rockies, which is always, always enjoyable. I remember being there about five years ago. It was New Year's Day 2018, and we had uh, two young kids at the time. Uh, my first son, Soren, was about to be a year old, and we hadn't had a date. We hadn't really kind of been out for quite some time having a little you know, baby in the house. And Laura's mother was also out in Colorado, and she said, listen, I'll take the kids. You guys spend New Year's Day morning skiing. Go on a ski date, which was amazing. Like, what? just what we needed. We needed to get out. And it was a beautiful morning. We had just got a dumping of snow, but it wasn't frigid cold. So we're out on the slopes, thrilled to be out, taking selfies on the ski lift. And as I'm taking selfies of my wife and me, I look and I see the panoramic picture behind me. The Rockies, mountain peaks, staggered, glistening in the morning sun. And I had to put the phone down and just look behind me and behold the beauty all around us. It was a moment where I just, I stopped and I just, I, I, I prayed, I mouthed a prayer saying, God, you're good. You're powerful. What you make is beautiful. You see, in that moment, creation served as a call to worship. which is what we see in the opening pages of the Bible. Creation is a call to worship the creator. What is your favorite physical setting in this world? What view or scene moves you to stand in awe of God the creator? What is it? Theologian John Calvin once wrote, creation is the theater of God. Creation is the arena within which God majestically performs and invites his creatures to behold what he's created and to stand in awe and rejoice in him. Creation is the theater of God, that setting in which he majestically performs. Creation is a call to worship the creator. This truth will be our emphasis for the next two weeks. Today we begin a new sermon series in the book of Genesis, which is an encouraging, just an exciting time to do this together in community. Genesis is foundational. As we know, it is the first book in our Bible, yet oftentimes one that's overlooked or one that creates some intimidation. Well, we just want to move through it together. Uh, we'll begin by doing Genesis 1 through 11, and then a couple years from now, we'll finish going through the, the latter portion of the book, Genesis 12 through 50, the patriarchal history. But we're going to, this winter and early spring, we're going to study the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. As we trek through the train of Genesis, we will periodically pause and camp out on a certain theme. For example, in a few short weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll camp out on the image of God, the implications of the image of God in our lives and in our culture. What is the impact 
that flows from the fact that men and women are created in God's image, that we bear his image, we reflect his character, his glory back to him. So the title of this series will be God the Creator and Redeemer. God the Creator and Redeemer. What's unique about Genesis 1 through 11 is that these chapters cover the first three major milestones in redemptive history. We've used this outline of the Bible before. Major milestones, major movements in redemptive history. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Consummation is when it's all wrapped up, when the Lord returns and wraps it all up. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And the reality is in Genesis 1 through 11, you see creation, the beauty of it, spun into existence by God, the creator. You see the tragic fall in Genesis chapter 3. And then from Genesis 3, 6 onward, you see God putting into motion the plan that he had before all eternity because the fall didn't surprise him. implementing, executing the work of redemption that carries you through Revelation where we see consummation. But in Genesis 1 through 11, you see the first three major milestones in redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption beginning to unfold. It's foundational. We don't understand ourselves and our world without understanding Genesis 1 through 11. So God, the creator and redeemer, Let's turn on our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You will have no problem finding this passage this morning in the Bibles that you find on your seat. You can find that on page 1, page number 1. And as I always mention, if you don't own a Bible, we love to give Bibles away in the lobby on the bookshelves. You can find black hardback cover Bibles. Please take one if you need it. If you have a friend who needs one, receive that as well. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We aren't going to cover much ground in Genesis this morning. One verse, that's it. In the beginning, God created the the heavens, and the earth. A small verse with massive implications. I understand that there are profound questions about creation. Each one of us has them. You'll be asking them even this morning as I preach. Creation is highly contested in our culture, isn't it? How do we understand time in Genesis 1? Are the days of creation literal 24-hour periods? Did God employ evolutionary principles in his work of creation? Why are there two accounts of creation, one in Genesis 1 and another in Genesis 2? Lots of good questions, and we'll address many of them in turn. But the primary question that we must ask this morning, and this is true for any sermon or Bible study, is what did the original author intend to communicate to his audience? Why is this book in the Bible? What did the original author intend to communicate to his readers? We must see the intent of the author and allow scripture to speak on its own terms before we input what our human minds 
want to input into the, to the text. What did the original author seek to communicate to us? And what we find in Genesis 1 is the author is inviting his readers to worship. It's a call to worship. First and foremost, it is a call to stand in awe of the creator. Highly poetic, stylized, deliberate, repetitive, symmetric. It's a beautiful poem of praise to the creator God. It's an invitation to worship. Speaking of the author, Genesis is part of the Bible that is sometimes called the Torah, which means the law in Hebrew. Sometimes it's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That is the, the law of Moses. Why is it called the Pentateuch? Penta, five, tuch, tukos is the Greek word for container. It's a five container work. Why container? Because scrolls were wrapped up and put in containers for protection. So in 1947, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, what did they find? A bunch of rolled up paper? No, they found rolled up paper in containers with tops on them for protection. It is a five container work. All of those scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, wrapped up and put in containers. Pentateuchos, five container work. Genesis leads off that work. And in other parts of the Bible, the Torah is often referred to as the law of Moses, both in the Old and the New Testaments. Well, why is that important? Because the witness of Scripture itself is that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the Torah of Moses. It was him who wrote it down. Now, we have to ask the question, how did Moses receive the parts of the Pentateuch that he wasn't witness of? Who's the primary actor in Genesis 1? God, and he did a whole lot before there were any people. Moses wasn't. How in the world did Moses get this information and pass it on to us? Well, here's a helpful passage from the New Testament that shed light, sheds light on this question. Acts chapter 7 Verse 38. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is Stephen, the disciple Stephen's marvelous unpacking of redemptive history. And Stephen says, This Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. Moses received living oracles from God to give to us. How did Moses receive the information that's communicated in Genesis 1? Moses talked with the Lord God Almighty on Mount Sinai. He was given the information that he then passed on to us. Moses received living oracles to give to us, the people of God, who would come later. He received divine information and instruction from the Lord on Mount Sinai. Exactly what God wanted to communicate to us about creation, he communicated to Moses on Mount Sinai, was written down and passed on. Moses is the author of Genesis. Now our passage at hand this morning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
This is a summary statement for Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It sums up what we see in those two chapters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by heavens and earth, he's giving us the the, the far-reaching poles and everything in between. It's called a merism. Heavens, high as the heavens, low as the earth, including everything in between. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. That's what's being said. It's a sum total work. He's summing up what we will see in the next two chapters. It's a summary statement. Now this morning, I want to make three claims about Genesis 1-1. Three claims about Genesis 1-1. And here's the first. Creation is about the unrivaled God. Creation is about the unrivaled God. And notice how the Bible begins. The very first words of the Bible begin like this. In the beginning, God... Notice what it doesn't say. In the beginning, people. In the beginning, Dane Helsing. In the beginning, President Biden. In the beginning, Taylor Swift. In the beginning, LeBron James. No, no, no. In the beginning, God. The Bible is about God first and foremost. What he has done, what we receive. In the beginning, God. Don't miss the first prepositional phrase. Because if you get that, you get the rest. It's about God. He is the primary actor, the main character, the hero of the story. It's not about you. It's not about me. In the beginning, God. He is the self-existent one. He is before all things. He is the eternal God. There is none like him. He is unmatched, unparalleled, unrivaled. In the beginning, God. In Genesis one, one is helping us see this God who sits forever on his throne and cannot be dethroned. He's not on the throne because we've elected him to be there. He's on it because he's always been on his throne. That's what it means to be God. He is the eternal king of kings and lord of lords. Genesis 1.1 one, one is inviting us to embrace our smallness and God's immensity. You cannot live your life rightly with big thoughts of yourself and small thoughts of God. The only way to live your life rightly is small thoughts of yourself, big thoughts of God. It's inviting us to see our smallness and God's immensity. And there we find our place. There we find our security. There we find our hope. When we grasp God's immensity, his power and authority, There's a line of demarcation in Genesis 1-1. It's very simple. Very simple visual illustration. There is the creator on this side of the line. The line is my music stand. And there's the created on the other side. There is the creator. And then there's the created. One creator, everything else is created. He is set apart from everything else. We are on this side of the line. He is on that side of the line. He is creator. We are created. And where we get into trouble is when we do one of these. Genesis 3 runs amok because Adam and Eve do one of these. What does Satan use to tempt them? Oh, you will be like God. Satan's tempting Adam and Eve to get over here, to take the throne. 
to be in a position they were never intended to be. There's a line of demarcation in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, over here, created everything else here. You got to get that right. Don't be stepping over here. It's God's, it's God's place, God's throne. A line of demarcation that's critical to maintain. In the beginning, God. Everything runs amok when we try to jump the line. Our desire to get on the other side of this line is the nature of sin. It's the nature of sin. We want to rule. We want to be in charge. Tell me and be honest. Don't you love to be in control in your life? And what happens when you're not in control? You hold on to things, your career, your family, your future with a white knuckle grip, and it creates anxiety and anxiousness in your life. You're trying to take the reins that you were never intended to take. That's God's role. We want control. The nature of sin is seeking to rule, to take the reins. But we were never intended to take those reins, to sit on the throne. We were never intended to sit there. There is only one who rightly fits on the throne, who rightly can occupy the throne. It's the Lord God Almighty. And the rest of redemptive history, from Genesis 3 onward, tells the story of God pursuing people and getting them off the throne. Because them on the throne is destructive and ruinous and leads to our demise. And ironically, it took God sending his son Jesus, stepping down from his heavenly throne temporarily to get us off the throne. Jesus steps down from his heavenly throne, becomes incarnate as a man, lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death in our place, rises again victorious, and invites all self-ruling people to repent, to get off the throne, and allow him to get back on there. Ironically, it took the son to leave his heavenly throne to get us off our own. God is unrivaled. Genesis 1 is not arguing for the existence of God. According to Moses' original intent, it's not arguing for the existence of God. In the ancient world, everyone believed in gods and lots of them. Well, that's not Moses' primary task. Genesis 1 is arguing for a global God, a monotheistic faith, the God of Israel, unmatched, unparalleled. There is none like him. This is an audacious claim because Israel was a wee little nation in the ancient Near East, surrounded by superpowers. Who are they to make such an audacious claim? But that's what God desired to communicate to Israel and the people all around them. That their God, Yahweh, the Lord God, is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is unparalleled, unmatched. There is none like him. That's the message. That's the message. And Israel was designed to tell that story. And as we know in redemption of history, they fail miserably to shine the light of this God to their neighbors. And God in his infinite wisdom sent his son to be the ultimate Israel to shine that light and we on this side of the cross are a part of that witnessing work, continuing to tell the nations about this King of Kings, God of Gods, the Lord of the universe. He's unmatched. He's the creator and king of the universe. And this creation account is set apart from all the other origin 
accounts. You can go and, and read some ancient Near Eastern histories, so, some accounts of creation. I'll give you an example. There's an account called Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian creation myth. You know what's trademarked to these ancient myths of creation? You know what's in the vast majority of them? Warfare. Cosmic warfare among gods. One god is tearing up another god and creating out of the carnage. So, so for example, in Enuma Elish, two main actors, a mother goddess, Tiamat, goes to battle against a warrior god, Marduk, one of the chief gods of the Babylonians. Marduk, this warrior god, shoots an arrow at Tiamat, strikes her in the heart, and then he proceeds to tear her in two pieces, and both of her body parts become spheres of water. And then in the rest of the carnage, he's taking that material and he's creating the other elements of creation. It's a cosmic battle. It's warfare. It's carnage. What do you see in Genesis chapter 1? The antithesis of that, the exact opposite. It's peacefulness. There are no battles. God is unrivaled. There is no raw material. He speaks and things come into being. It's altogether different from what you read in the ancient world. It's because he's unmatched, he's unparalleled. Friends, when you and I come to believe in the Lord God's unparalleled power, it changes our lives. When you and I come to grasp God's unparalleled power and authority, it changes our lives. You find your source of security, strength, and hope. God is the creator God. He spun it all into existence. And the world is upheld by the power of his word thereafter. And he will bring it to its appointed end in time. From beginning to end, God is God. He is the main actor. He's at work. Our lives are in his hands. And we are at peace when we realize that and rest in that truth. There is no battle. People talk about this fearsome battle of Armageddon at the end of time. Let me tell you a secret about Armageddon. It's over really fast. If it were a major motion picture, you would walk out of the, the screen and say, I want my money back. It's over in half a verse. Revelation 20, verse 9. The armies of the world led by Satan are on one side. The armies of the people of God are on the other side. And as you, they approach each other, you're expecting this massive showdown. And suddenly, Revelation 20, verse 9, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the evildoers, and it's over. There is none like God. It's not a contest. God is God. And when you get that, and when I get that, it changes how we live. Our security is in him. Our purpose is in him. Our hope is in him. God is God. He's unrivaled. Creation is about the unrivaled God. Number two, creation is intimately tied to redemption. Creation is intimately tied to redemption. Creation ultimately points to Jesus Christ because it is by Jesus that we were created, for Jesus that we were created, and by Jesus that we are recreated when we went to ruin because of sin. He is the agent of God's creation 
And he's the agent of God's recreation at the cross. There's a glorious link between Genesis 1-1 and a passage in the New Testament. We spoke about this during Advent. What is that link? There are only two books in all the Bible that begin with the same prepositional phrase, in the beginning. What are the two books? Genesis and John. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Creation and redemption are linked in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the agent of God's creation, and Jesus is the agent of God's recreation at the cross for all sinners who will trust in his Son. We have been created by the very hands of Jesus Christ. Through him, all things were created. John 1, 1, he was there with the Spirit, the triune God, Working in creation, the spirit hovering over the waters like mother hen hovering. We've been created by the hands of Jesus and we've been recreated by faith in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. Creation and redemption are intimately linked together. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Dylan read this for us and our time of assurance after we confessed our sins. That's a work of recreation. If you've trusted in Christ, you are united to him, inseparably united to him. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation. The old self has gone. The old master sin is gone. You have a new master, a new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. Celebrate it. Rejoice in it. Friend, do you desire to shed the old simple self this morning? Look to Christ. Do you desire to be freed from the burden of sin and guilt and shame, stuck in that same old rut? Look to Christ. He's your only way out. Look to Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. Creation is intimately tied to redemption. One of the ties that binds them is that both creation and redemption require faith. Both creation and redemption require faith. Creation re requires faith. Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith we understand this. Redemption also requires faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the work of God so that no person may boast. Creation, to be rightly understood and embraced, requires faith. Redemption, to be rightly understood and embraced, requires faith. They're linked together. Both of these realities that unfold in the storyline of the Bible are appropriately responded to by faith. Now, this does not mean that we check our brains at the door when we come to study about creation and redemption. The Christian faith 
is a studied faith, an informed faith, an investigated and researched faith. You never check your brain at the door. You engage all of your head and all of your heart in this. But friends, there comes a time where enough information is enough information. You have to trust in God as creator and redeemer. It requires faith to rightly respond to creation and redemption. There's no way around that. That's the way God designed it to be. It requires faith to rightly respond and embrace and understand creation and redemption. Creation is about the unrivaled God. Creation is intimately tied to redemption. Thirdly and finally, creation is a call to worship. Creation is a call to worship. We will unpack this third claim in further detail next week as we tease out the details of Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 4. That's our next section. For now, I'll just summarize what we will then see in greater detail. Genesis 1 is highly stylized and poetic. It is a literary masterpiece, not primarily a science book. It's a literary masterpiece intended by the original author, Moses, to call people to worship. Such repetition, and God said, and it was, and God said, and it was, and God said, and it was. Highly symmetric. God creates habitats, one through three. God creates inhabitants, four through six to fill and rule the habitats, highly symmetrical and balanced. It's order all over the place. That's what the author, that's what Moses is seeking to communicate to us. It's like a perfectly designed worship gathering, a, a worship set or an order of worship where the ultimate worship leader, God himself, is guiding us, ushering us from one component to the next that our breath might be taken away with each successive invitation to praise. That's what it is. It's a call to worship. All the created order is invited to worship the creator. The faithful leader of God's people, Nehemiah, some 1,000 years after Moses writes this down, this creation account down, here's what Nehemiah writes reflecting on creation. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Do you hear where Nehemiah is taking us? You alone are the creator. You've done all of it. Heaven and earth and the seas and all that fills them and all of it worships you. That's the goal of creation. Creation's built for worship. The created order was made to bring praise to God. You and I find our purpose, our meaning in worship of God. And the trouble is, friends, we are prone to worship self. We are prone to look to ourselves before we look to God, to please ourselves before we please God, to serve ourselves before we serve God. That, that's the nature of sin, and it's innate in our hearts. You don't have to teach this to kids. They know it. In the process of redemption, 
is turning from self and turning to God, turning from self-worship and worshiping God alone. You and I find our purpose, our hope, our satisfaction in the worship of God alone. And the appropriate response to this God, to this creator, is thanksgiving and praise. That's what it is. Creation's a gift. We need to receive the gift, steward the gift. Life is a gift. And the appropriate response is just praising God, honoring him. And in that, we find our purpose. We find our meaning. I remember my senior year at Bucknell University where I went to undergrad. I was two years into my Christian faith. I became a Christian at the end of my sophomore year. And I was a biochemistry major. And every biochemistry student had to take a capstone course. It's like the final course that you take that kind of brings everything into summation of your degree. And you try to apply it in, in a real-life setting. And so I remember being in that first class, looking at the syllabus, and, and the students had to choose their project or a presentation. And one of them was, make a case for creation. This is a highly secular university. And I looked down, and it was as if God was jumping off the page. That's yours. That's the one that you do. And I was scared to death. This is before any kind of like, pastoral calling. I love Jesus, and I was oftentimes scared to speak, but, but the Lord was doing something in me. He said, that's the one day. Get up in front of your classmates, study hard, and make a case for creation. So long in about April, after weeks of research, talking with my home pastor in Pittsburgh on spring break, studying and writing and putting all this together in, in PowerPoint, I remember just standing up Nervous as can be, but praying that God would just use me to make a case in a context when most of these folks believe in what was called philosophical naturalism, Darwinism, this sort of all-encompassing worldview, molecule to a man, macroevolution. That, that, that's, that's what this school believed. We'll talk next week. There is such a thing as microevolution, cyclic adaptation among species. Okay. But when you make the jump from molecule to a man, that, that's macroevolution. And that requires as much faith as it does to believe the Bible. But that, that's what was being kind of doled out in large portions at every of these biology classes, okay? And so my last slide, I looked at the slide last night just so that I could refresh myself. It was just this question What's at stake? Why is this so heated? And there was a lot of debate going on in the classroom. And I just, the last slide, what's at stake in this discussion? And I just said, it's simply a question of purpose, of meaning and hope. It's a question of purpose and meaning and hope. What answers do macroevolution, philosophical naturalism provide? Life has no purposeful meaning. Life is merely a fortuitous conglomeration of chemical and physical interactions, no relationship with God, no accountability. That's the one end. What answers do biblical creation provide? Our purpose is to share in a personal relationship with this creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. And at that point, Richard Ellis says, that's enough. 
I'm going to pull rank. It's all right. This creator we were lived to know, to follow, and to glorify. End of presentation. Charles Coulson, who was implicated in the Watergate scandal, comes to faith years later, started wonderful prison ministry, writes this. Our origin determines our destiny, who we are, why we're here, and how we should live. Our origin determines our destiny, who we are, why we're here, and how we should live. This is a question of utmost importance. Where do we come from? Oh, find yourself in your creator God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for time to study it in community. Help us, Lord, to be diligent, to work hard, to engage our minds, and to allow it to seep deeply into our hearts that we would worship you. Thank you for the witness in Scripture, your servant Moses faithfully recording what you gave to him on Mount Sinai. Thank you for this invitation to praise you. Lord, help us to open our eyes, see your handiwork all around us, and to praise you and worship you, find our identity in you. In Jesus' name, amen.